You are listening to the cycling podcast of the 2023 Tour de France. Today we're in Poligny. Welcome to a very sunny terrace in Arbois, in the heart of the Jura. It's a delightful little spot this, isn't it, Richard? Overlooked by a fine standing church, um, a little plaque with Arbois' most famous son, uh, Monsieur Pasteur. More on him later. Indeed. Well, just another hidden treasure of France. Exactly. I mean, we've been talking about this in the van, about the sort of places that you would not come to if it were not for the Tour de France, this is not a tourist trap, but it's a charming little town. Um, well, maybe you would come here if you wanted to find out a bit more about Louis Pasteur. I don't know. But uh, we are drinking a locally brewed beer from about 10 kilometres away. It's called Goose. And it's, it's incredibly sour, isn't it? Sour and salty. Sour and salty. Did I, I didn't believe it when, when it was described. I thought, how can a beer be that sour and salty? But it really is. Replacing key electrolytes here, Lionel. Well... Yes, but today the temperature has dropped significantly, hasn't it? It's about 10 degrees cooler than it has been the last few days. We're definitely heading north. Much more my cup of tea this weather. And uh, it was very, very hot days racing, though. Let's talk about stage 19, shall we? It's time for the tale of the attack. So it was from Moiron en Montagne to Poligny, 172.8 kilometres, and we had the closest finish of the Tour de France so far. A uh, real photo finish between Matteo Mohoric of Bahrain Victorious. He was, I was going to say a tyre's width ahead, but it was actually more of a deep section rim ahead of yesterday's man of the day, yesterday's stage winner, Kasper Askreen, who almost made it two out of two for Sudal Quickstep, but no, Mohoric got it. I feel like I've maybe um, atoned for my dreadful pick of Mikkel Björg on day one <laughs> by, uh, I think, did I say last night that, that Quickstep could be on a roll? And you it, did. it was, well, did. The, the, the noises around the finish line by the buses was power and boil, boil being the word for a tyre. So, yeah, pretty much pretty much a tie with Mahoric got it and it was a very aggressive stage again I think after Jonas Vingegaard put the yellow jersey out of reach a few days ago our hearts sank a little bit at the thought that this might be two really run-of-the-mill sprint stages and they've been anything but yesterday was actually a fantastic finale and today was just a great race I mean we're here for some riders who described it as uh, basically a classic within the Tour de France. A very aggressive start again, took a lot of attacking before a break eventually went clear. And, well, again, the riders that were in that break, probably no real surprise. Victor Campanet, one of the key players yesterday, was in it for Lotto Destiny. But there was also Tish Benut of Jumbo Visma, Matteo Trentin of UAE, Julian Alaphilippe of Sudal Quickstep, Jack Haig of Bahrain, Mads Pedersen of Lidl Trek, Georg Zimmermann of Antamarche and Warren Barguil of Arkea. So some real strength in that break for a lumpy old course. And just the same as yesterday, they weren't given any real headway. It was a minute, perhaps a bit more, too many dangerous riders in there. And what we saw in the final third of the stage really was quite surprising because after the intermediate sprint, with around 70 kilometres to go, there was a second big attack and it included Jasper Philipson the green jersey and around about 25 other riders and they rode their way across to the break at some point then Victor Campanarts took off and he was joined by Simon Clark of Israel 
And on the third category climb, which really started to shake up the Cote d'Ivoire, Campanarch dropped Simon Clark, and then just behind, Kasper Askreen made his move. He was marked by Matthew Mohoric of Bahrain Victorious and Ben O'Connor of AG2R, and they quickly got up to Campanarch, who then promptly cracked a lot of work that he's done over the last couple of stages, so not surprising. And then we had a fantastic chase between the leading trio and the group behind, which had Philipson in it, but it also had, as I said, Pedersen. Matthew van der Poel had got up there, Tom Pidcock, Trentin was still in there, Christophe Laporte, Betiol, Mezgek. I mean, some real horsepower. But Philipson was getting very frustrated that the cohesion and the chase wasn't uh, to his liking. Sort of throwing his weight around a little bit again, but the gap didn't come down. It was still... 30 odd seconds going into the last kilometre and they had it for themselves Ben O'Connor went early 500 metres from the line really the only tactic that he had at his disposal being the climber in the trio tried to hit them Askreen reacted Mohoric bided his time opened up his sprint very very close on the line but a third stage win for Bahrain victorious and well we're going to talk a lot about Matthew Mohoric in the next part but overall no change of course the final hilly mountain stage tomorrow up in the Vosges and uh, well we don't anticipate Jonas Vingegaard cracking at all but stage 19 we were talking about the phenomenon of stage 19 on a year when it's not a big mountain stage it can sometimes be a bit meh, the final Friday everyone's looking forward to Paris or maybe a time trial or the last mountain stage can sometimes be a bit of a lukewarm affair but not today cracking race one of the kind of characteristics of a uh of a Prudhomme tour has been having the, the, the mountain stages sort of slammed right to the end and then a transfer to Paris. And so I think when I, when I looked at this course and saw that these two stages, uh, sort of sp- sprinty, breakaway stages were, were on there, I was a little bit worried that it wasn't going to produce the sort of racing that they were perhaps hoping for. But it, the reality has been... It, anything but that I'm going to put you in quiz corner again Lionel oh goodness I don't know if you know this or have looked it up today's stage do you know whereabouts it would sit in terms of the the, the average speeds of road stages in Tour de France history oh I'm afraid I do do you I'm do know it I do. it's the fifth fastest Tour de France stage re- um road stage in history obviously time trials are quicker but what was it 49.1 49.13 yeah we, I mean we drove on the the whole course route which sort of mirrored the uh, the race route today and it it's not flat, is it? Absolutely It, it was not. up and down, twisty-turny, grippy, not, not necessarily the slow roads, but, but not the real fast-rolling fast uh, flat stage. Well, let's hear from a couple of riders who were in the thick of the action. Yesterday's winner, Kasper Askreen of Sudal Quickstep, well, he described what it was like. And then Lars Vandenberg of Groupama FDJ, who was in the break, uh, but when push came to shove on that final climb, he drifted backwards. But when you hear what they say, it gives an indication of just how hard a day that was. It was a hard, hard stage. Uh, I didn't have the best legs. felt quite empty from yesterday, so uh, my plan was to just uh, take an easy day in the bunch. That was quite difficult, though. group went, but uh, it didn't seem like the bunch was really happy with it, so the pace was always super high. And uh, at the intermediate sprint, it was clear to see a group was kind of bridge, so I tried to be up there and just stay in the wheels and... Uh, all of a sudden I found myself in front <laughs> again and uh, then I was just trying to go for it. We got away on the last categorized climb with uh, Ben and uh, Mate and um, 
yeah, it was a really good group. We could work together all the way to the finish, so that was great. Well, it was really just uh, you know X riding, and then uh, afterwards it was uh, every team versus uh, everyone. So uh, yeah, it was real racing today. Have you been in a breakaway like that before? 34 guys going full on all day? No, not really. Not, not like this. Not from start to, to finish. Not, normally it calms down a little bit, but now it was uh, yeah full gas. I think we had three and a half hours for. Uh, 170k so uh, yeah it was a hard and fast day it seemed like it was being raised like a one-day classic yeah 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 but i think it's also you know like a lot of guys know it's their last chance today tomorrow is more for the climbers and then champs-elysees so for me it was the same i wanted to be in the break today and we could see i, I was not the only guy that uh, had the same plan that the guys in the front are super strong like Asgrain and campanards it's uh, it's incredible and uh, yeah then you have to be really strong uh, to get them back. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Pique, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Argonaut Cycles, which is bespoke carbon fibre road and gravel bikes for the discerning cyclist who's looking for more than just a mass-produced, mass-marketed product. And... Argonaut cycles are all made in Bend, Oregon, which is where Ian Boswell is from, coincidentally. Argonaut is able to control every parameter of ride quality with hundreds of unique carbon layup combinations that control horizontal, vertical and torsional stiffness. Argonaut's ability to deliver a truly carbon bike is unrivaled, resulting in the best riding bicycle in the world. Don't take Argonaut's word for it or mine. James Huang from Cycling Tips and Outside Magazine said, with a ride quality that sets a benchmark that mainstream brands would do well to target, it's that good. Go to argonautcycles.com and start building your dream bike today. Man of the day though, Matti Mohoric of Bahrain, Victorious, a Slovenian rider of course, uh, very well known for winning Milan Sanremo last year with that incredible descent on the Poggio. He's won a couple of tour stages before, of course, at uh, Le Cruzo and Libourne in 2021. The Le Cruzo one especially was remarkable, a huge breakaway on a day when, well, we really expected the tour to kind of fall asleep because it was across the kind of breadbasket of central France, an absolutely cracking stage. And then Libourne, somebody in the press conference described it as a kind of attacker's world championship stage. And I suppose today was very similar. And this tour, of course, the Bahrain victorious team came into it after the tragedy of Gino Maida's death at the Tour de Suisse. They've had three stage wins here, Peo Bilbao, Waltpols, and now at Mohoric. And Mohoric was third on the Puy de Dom, and he talked a little bit about that in the press conference at the finish. But what a season he's had, because he was really targeting the Spring Classics in April, and said he was in great, great form, but then crashed at Gent-Wevelgem, then had a big crash in the Tour of Flanders, and then missed the decisive moment in Paris-Roubaix. And, you know promising 6th, 7th, 8th place results in the earlier races came to nothing in the real big ones and now here he is in the Tour de France almost at the end of the race his last chance to win a stage up against yesterday's winner who everybody would have said is a faster finisher Casper Askreen and yet he pulled it off really, really impressive Yeah, and 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 a good talker as well I I, I was out at the team buses which are a kilometre or two away from the... Um, the press room and the winners press conference and, and I stumbled in and, and everybody was glued to it and, and press conferences aren't always like that I mean interviewing a, a bike rider after they've just smashed themselves for between three and five hours doesn't always bring the best and most sort of eloquent 
Well, we, we had the interview. real contrast because Jonas Vingegaard had just been answering questions, five questions for the yellow jersey, uh, one of which was about whether he'd been dope tested at any of the altitude training camps he'd been at during the build-up to the Tour de France and he said that yes he was tested but he couldn't remember how many times and it was a kind of you know just a, a flat uh, answer with no real detail to it and then the next question was was your performance on a higher level to last year's tour and his answer was probably yes I mean for print journalists that's not a lot of material to work with and then Matty Mahoric came in and he is just an open book I mean bearing in mind he's speaking in a second language English he was able to express himself emotionally, uh, eloquently, with depth and kind of poetry and, and uh, really kind of thoughtfully engaged with the questions. And of course, the, the question of how Gino Maida's death had affected him came up. And he said that as riders, they spend more time with their teammates and with their families. And so it's bound to affect um, when something like that happens. But he said... In a way, he was fortunate that he wasn't on the tour of the Swiss because he didn't know how he would have handled that situation, which is a quite a mature answer to give, really, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's, not, it's not a kind of a, you know, just a, a bland glossing over. It's an indication that he's really thought about what he's saying. Like I said, that's not, that's not always the case, certainly in the quite sterile conditions of a press conference as well. You know, for people who are, are following the tour at home, it's, we're not actually at the moment allowed face-to-face contact um, which often when you're interviewing a rider is, is quite important um, in terms of establishing a sort of sense of, of trust and good communication. You know, the, the rider at the moment is sat inside a sort of booth, aren't they, it's close by the finish line, um, just after they finish the stage and all the, the journalists are over in the press room and connected by a video link. And it, it, can, it can be quite a sterile, uh, sterile atmosphere and, and difficult for riders to feel comfortable to, to start speaking to a, a group of sort of basically strangers. Absolutely. I mean, I make no apology for kind of running through what he said. We don't record the press conferences because uh, they're really for our uh, colleagues working in uh, print. And so I'll sort of quote what Matty Mahoric said. I mean, he talked about finishing third on the Puy de Dom stage and referred to Gino Maida and said that, you know, usually he would have sat up because he's not a climber. He knew he couldn't win the stage, but on that occasion, he just wanted to do his best. He wanted to go as hard as he could and get to the line in the best position he could because he was riding for Gino, who was a climber. And he said... I didn't think I could win that stage, but I just wanted to do my best because he can't do that anymore. Again, another you know thoughtful, engaging mm. and emotional response. And then he talked about how he won the stage and we were watching and it was obvious that Ben O'Connor would go for the long one. That was mm. the only tactic he had. But Mohoric said that he was waiting for Askreen to react and he knew that Askreen would go because he was so strong and Mohoric's job was to get on the wheel and then launch his sprint late from behind Askreen which is which is what he did but he did also say you know he might not have the best power he might not be the best sprinter but he is aerodynamic and he mm. knows that he can use that as an advantage and although he was emotional in the press conferences afterwards he said during a race I'm very cold I'm like a sports director in my head I try to visualize the race from the helicopter or the TV and make the decisions with a detachment and he said some other guys are more emotional and that means they make mistakes. Sort of giving himself a kind of helicopter view of his own race tactics, pretty impressive. And he said his only chance to beat Askreen was to let him lead him out, wait for the last moment and do the huge bike throw and hope that it would be enough. 
he was very proud of his bike throw he said and then the last word in the press conference one of those quotes uh, I'm sure our print colleagues will have been punching the air <laughs> he said if I sprinted with Casper in training 100 times I would lose all 100 times definitely <laughs> and you can't kind of ask for more than that from an athlete who's just been through what he's been through on the road and to express himself so well in the press conference and a that, great and character that, and that expresses this this unique situation that we're in on stage 19 of the hardest bike race in the world things that under any other circumstances would never happen ask they can happen it's 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 almost like the sort of rules of bike racing start to sort of melt don't they and and mm. uh, you end up with I mean, like like what we saw today, basically a one-day classic happening, and that's a product of the the tiredness and the just the the fact that you've got fewer riders left here, the sort of unique tactical permutations from teams that have lost riders and from uh, the different motivations that are going on, and you know, like as I think that a lot of riders will be very aware that today was the last stage for most of them. You know, tomorrow is going to be for the for the climbers or even for the GC guys, and Paris is for the sprinters. Mm-hmm. And also, there's so much familiarity in those groups now, isn't there? A lot of those riders have been in breakaways over the last two weeks, oh. all alongside one another. I mean, it'd be fascinating to crunch the numbers and see just how much overlap there is. But there's the same names every day, and we do see that late in the tour. Yeah, I, I mean, Victor Campanaz was he, he had done over 500 kilometres in the break this tour before, even before today started. So that will be another, uh, like another hundred on that at least. Um, and, and it often comes down to just a matter of who is the strongest it's we saw that with Askren. logic dictates that if you've had the kind of effort that he did yesterday 178 kilometers in a very small breakaway like that's a big workload plus all the after stage stuff that you go through so his recovery has been suboptimal i'd imagine there was a glass or two of champagne last night with oh, you know at the, at the team dinner so he's not coming in and <laughs> the best best lead up into today's stage and, and that was it expressed that in saying that he wants to take it easy but he's still one of the best riders and one of the strongest riders in this in this race the, the other riders are just that tired basically one other little news line really from Mate Mahoric which kind of surprised me I think he did confirm that he won't be riding the world championships in Glasgow in a couple of weeks time because he doesn't think he can beat the best riders in the world on that particular course which surprised me because I thought it was going to be a real classics type course but maybe it's a bit too technical for him he was saying that you've got to be in a position to fight for a very advanced position all day and he doesn't feel like he deserves to be in there on equal billing in a Slovenia team alongside Tadej Pogacar. Interesting that he's chosen not to be part of the team at all and, and, and work for somebody else. But if he doesn't feel he can win it and doesn't want to be there, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is surprising because with the world being so close to the end of the Tour de France now, it's, it's likely that the sort of riders that are going to be competitive in the world are those that are actually coming out of the Tour with good form. I mean, you see it most years with Classica San Sebastian, don't you? That someone who's who's had a good last week of the tour comes into Classica and, and that that's the selection you know so Mohoric is a is a deep thinker isn't he and if he's made that decision it's not because he just doesn't fancy it just wants to go home which would be understandable but he has analyzed that and, and realized that he's he's not got not not going to be able to do a job we are very proud to be supported by Matt, partnering with Matt, really, because they created the Cycling Podcast jersey, which is available at map.cc. And, well, we were founded around about the same time as Matt, 2013. Matt and the Cycling Podcast 
were first released into the world. And I wanted to know from co-founder Jared Smith whether Cadell Evans' Tour de France win helped to accelerate their plans into the cycling clothing market. Mac really came about from my personal addiction with cycling and also fashion. And then having like a hero like Cadell Evans win the Tour de France definitely was inspiring, helped grow the recognition of cycling. So the timing of all that was probably good for us. The essence behind that from Oliver, my business partner and I who co-founded the brand with me, was, you know, we came from a surf and skate background more so. So we really wanted to bring something new to cycling so that we could bring new people to cycling as well. And to really bring that different perspective on cycling, that it can be cool, not just really sports driven and really just about the technology of the garments, but we wanted to be able to bring some of that fashion streetwear element to cycling. So having uh, an Australian winning the Tour de France really sort of showcased the sport a bit more and that's enabled us to bring our style to the sport. Go to map.cc to buy the Cycling Podcast jersey and accessories or any of the other range of clothing for on and off the bike. Richard, I'm going to put you in quiz cul-de-sac now. We were talking yesterday about the likes of Mikel Merku, Michael Morkov, how far behind they are on GC and how that time difference equates to a stage and a half extra on the road compared to the top riders on GC. I wonder if you know how much all of the neutralised zones in this Tour de France add up to. Oh, that's a good question. They're quite long, aren't they? Some days they are. Some days they are. Yesterday was the longest at 16.2 okay. kilometres. So what have we got? Here. Nearly 20 stages, one time trials. That doesn't count. 18. I'm going to have to put you under pressure. Uh, 150k. Oh, 123.6 kilometres. So oh, it's almost close. another stage, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Admittedly at low intensity. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Not, not without its pitfalls. Though. I mean, Chris Froome famously crashed in 2013 on the opening stage in Corsica in the neutral zone. So, Indeed. You know, they're, Indeed. They're not just... They're not just uh, taking it easy. There's, I mean, there's often jostling position, jostling for position, isn't there? Rather? Because, yeah, if the brake's going to go, as soon as the flag drops, you've got to be there in the front Yeah, I, I, Mitch and I actually were at kilometre zero or thereabouts back in the first week, probably. I can't remember which day it was, but they came out of town. Obviously, lots of riders very eager to be in the brake. No one's allowed to overtake the lead red car, but they're right on the bumper and yeah, sort what, of flowing around the side. What is overtaking? Well, like, exactly. Where is the line? You're not allowed to be in front of Christian Prudhomme, right. I think, is the rule. And uh, people might wonder, why is there a neutralised zone? Well, often it's just to get safely out of town if they don't want people attacking through cobbled streets or narrow yeah, road furniture areas. If, if, if you're like Moirons on Montagne today, you know, all of the, the sort of setup of the tour can't go in an old town it's just too big so it was in an industrial estate with lots of space and our impression of Moiron was, was pretty poor like we weren't mm. that impressed to begin with because that's what you arrive into but then that's what you want to do if you're hosting the tour you want to see it coming through all your cobbled streets and whatnot so that's that's why the neutral zone is yeah. there yeah. yeah yeah well the Tour de France course put together by Thierry Gouvenou and his team is something that we discuss when the route is released in October and then we watch the Tour de France and we have this kind of impression has it been a good route has it been a bad route and we know that the riders make the race of course but the (laughs) wow party time in Arbois 
we know that Tour de France organisers have really sort of over a number of years they've upped their game in terms of just improving the route that they're giving the riders to race on. There's all sorts of reasons why they're doing that but they're, they're paying more and more attention aren't they not, not just sticking with the template because what's worked in the past is what's going to work now and and, and Thierry Gouvenu, ex-rider, but not not a big-name rider. Um, one of those sort of French riders who did his stint in the sport but had no real particular results to speak of, but has has really stood out as, as a quite innovative and, and thoughtful race director, like uh, director of the course on the, on the Tour de France. Uh, I went kind of Thierry Gouvenu hunting this morning. He's not an easy man to find because he's decked out in the sort of ASO uniform of uh, beige chinos and sort of blue shirt, which have got, sh- uh, have you noticed the elbow, elbow pads? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I fa- finally found him wandering up to the lead car just before the start. And, and um, I'm going to go start with a mea culpa here because for the first time in my reporting career, um, I failed to press record properly. Oh, Richard. And I'm, I, oh. I was kicking myself. A weekend spent in quiz cul-de-sac awaits. <laughs> <laughs> the naughty step awaits. Um, but, uh, but I did chat to Thierry about, about this year's race. You know, now it's coming to, his, to, coming to conclusion and, and, and what his thoughts were on it. I mean, he, he did say that he didn't really expect it to be quite this aggressive. Um, they've obviously designed a course for the climbers and that's been reflected in what the team's have been made of who the riders uh, are here what the, who the teams have chosen one of his jobs in the morning which is why he's often quite difficult to pin down is that he goes and talks to the teams and, and, and just chats through stuff you know he's there to, to listen to what the, the sports directors and managers are saying and, and I asked him what, what, whether he'd had any feedback from, from the teams and actually there wasn't any specific criticism or he, he wouldn't say that there was he, he was quite impressed by how the teams had adapted and I did ask him something which which you mentioned yesterday Lionel the 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 sort of Netflix effect or the potential for a Netflix effect in that the fact that the cameras are here the riders and teams know that there is this extra publicity there and extra attention and 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 the potential to to really hit sort of uh, a much bigger audience than than the tour traditionally attracts you know is that affecting the racing and making it more aggressive and more sort of attention seeking and he actually said well this is just a continuation of what happened in 2020. Uh, 2020 tour was quite unique in, in that everyone had been locked up in lockdown, training on the home trainer and, and not doing long rides, but just doing these specific efforts. And they just came out and just went berserk, didn't they? Like kind mm. of a, a dog that had been let, you know, kept in all day and let out into the garden, jump around. For him, this year's race is, is kind of a continuation of that. And he came up with quite a specific explanation for it. And that's that a lot of teams now are putting helpers out along the course with bottles and and gels and food so the natural flow of a race in the past you'd have domestiques go back to the cars grab musettes grab bottles etc and when that happened and and there were lots of riders doing that there would be a natural lull in proceedings because nobody's going to go off the front uh, because they're waiting for a bottle they're waiting for a food packet you know and there's that collective interest to just keep a lid on things these days if everyone's getting their bottles from the side of the road well there isn't that lull and so that sort of in, in his eyes explains why we just see this flat out racing and today was such a good example of that you know th- there was no let up was there from the gun it was just yeah and i think we're seeing slightly less predictable racing in the sense that you know that secondary break went after the sprint now normally on a stage like this Philipson would just have hoovered up some points and maybe the teams would have brought it back or maybe they didn't but there was 
there was no real chase effort and Philipson and co thought their best bet was to try and get up the road and and race the stage I mean we've never really seen that in the past um yesterday we were talking last night maybe we didn't mention it in the podcast but it kind of backfired on the sprinting teams to keep that gap so small yesterday because yeah. had they let it go out to three minutes there's no way that Inkhorn would have gone across the gap and Campanarch would have been able to um, drag him across and so the course the way they're racing these two things are coming together to create the unpredictable events that we're seeing and there's no such thing as a routine day on the Tour de France I'll caveat that by saying that the stage in Nogaro with the motor racing circuit finish after the two days in the Pyrenees following the two days in the, in the Basque Country, that was kind of like a, a, a response by the peloton to a very hard start to the Tour. But then once they'd had a little relatively easy day, straight back to aggressive racing again because the courses that laid out in front of the riders offer opportunity. And it's, it's been interesting to come out here in the last week and and some of the riders and, and sports directors that I've spoken to just to, in my mind, try to make sense of what I've been seeing because there is no one reason for what is going on at the Tour, why it's been so aggressively raced and so exciting to watch. It's been such a good spectacle, whether that's at home or, or on the roadside here. And, you know, what what Mikkel Murku said uh, yesterday when talking about the Grippetto or a couple of day or two ago, you know, that anxiety and that nervousness in the bunch and, and that's that will go a long way to explaining why the main peloton would not let a breakaway get up the road. You know, there's just that sort of uh, lack of cohesion, maybe lack of, um, they're not at ease, really. It's just sort of, I feel like we're beginning to piece together what's actually happening now in, in terms of bike racing. And, and, and this sort of, I think, feels like it's, it's the way the sport is going, isn't it? It is. And with the absence of 200-kilometre stages or 220-kilometre stages, which we have seen regularly in the past, the intensity is increased as well. Just before we move on, I do want to kind of um, you know, paint a bit of a picture of Thierry Gouverneur and his career. I mean, he's not an old man. He's 54. Uh, he was riding when I uh, first started as a cycling journalist. His career in the Tour de France spanned from 1994 to 2001. Uh, I remember he rode for the Big Map team. Uh, it didn't have any results as a pro, really, to speak of, but he did win the Paris-Roubaix Espoir uh, as an under-23 in 1990, and he was seventh in uh, the Big Boys Paris-Roubaix in 2002. Uh, but we have know from Seb Piquet, who is in the same car as uh, Thierry Gouverneau, Seb's talked lots in the past about you know he can pick up the vibe of whether a day is going the way that Gouverneur had hoped it would and mm. uh, I think this year uh, Gouverneur's been pretty happy pretty content with how the tour has turned I out I think so and, and I think one thing that we will look back on with this tour is just how successful that Grand Depart was the fact that there were very few big crashes to speak of I mean the, the first big crash happened on that stage in the Alps wasn't it stage 14 when the race was neutralised and, and that although he uh, you know I asked him about that as well and and I said, is we? He said that because the, the grinder part was so hard, that effectively um, reduces that tension in the bunch um, because you, it thins the bunch out, thins the competition out um, more so than a, a flat stage would be. And, and I asked him whether that's something that he was going to sort of basically incorporate into future tours. Now, he accepted that it was it had been a success, but the reality of it is that if they host a grinder part in Belgium or the Netherlands again, well. 
you've mm. got to go a very long way to get those sorts of roads i mean you could you could host something in the ardennes but you know narrow roads pretty tricky and pretty stressful roads so it's not always going to be possible to have that but i think that's something that um they probably thierry will have picked up on is um just how successful that was well let's just focus on one of the men of this week victor campanarts as you say been in the brakes over 500 kilometers up the road yesterday i found my new favorite rider I've, I've I've developed a soft spot for Victor. I think I just he's such a singular person. Like both as a as a rider in terms of who he is and what he can do, but but also his character as well. He's sort of off offbeat, um, energetic, excited, um, passionate guy. And uh, yeah, I, I I really wanted to speak to him this morning. He was just full of media commitments, so I didn't quite get the chance to. But and he was planning to go in the break again. Well, exactly. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, well, that was it. Uh, he he did go back to warm up on the rollers, actually this morning, um, which you know we would have been unheard of uh, once upon a time. But now is sort of par for the course, isn't it, on a day like today? So um, in the break again, and he's just got such an idiosyncratic riding style, very aerodynamic. You can see the modifications he's made to his bike. A chain ring you can eat your dinner off. It's enormous. I don't know what he's riding. 58 today, I think, probably. Interesting, because Mitch and Ian and I, we were talking about riders who are fast but don't necessarily look fast. And I think Victor Campanarts is one of those guys. He doesn't look... It's not, he's not orthodox, is he? No. But he is fast. That's, that's a very good way of putting it. He is, he is unorthodox. And I think I like that about him because... You know, I've heard this from other riders, especially especially sort of some of the bigger riders in the peloton, the lead-out men, is that courses get hillier. Even Milan San Remo is sort of trying to make it hillier. Paris Tours hillier. The sort of the sprinters' opportunities and the opportunities with big riders are getting less and less, and so the riders of the peloton are getting thinner and thinner, basically lighter, and, and power to weight is becoming more and more important. And Victor just—he's not one of those riders. He's you know he's a classics. Well, he's turned into a classics rider, hasn't he, in, in recent years. Um, he's got that track pedigree with his hour record. He's got this kind of breakaway, Barudeur style. Unique. I did try and get Victor at the finish today, um, but he was at anti-doping control, I believe. So, But I did find his manager, Stefan Hullo, who is the general manager now of, of Lotto Destiny. And, uh, There's Victor. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I spoke to Stefan about Victor and just asked him of his impressions of his rider. It seems like Victor is is really coming into coming into some fantastic form. I mean, tell me tell me a little about a little bit about where he's at. And Victor is very impressive since the start because he was in the breakaway uh, in the stage of the Puy Dome, and uh, all the day he, he wants to create a move in the in the bench. And today and yesterday, he was he was great because uh, without him uh, uh, yesterday, it was not possible to arrive for the for the win. And today, yes, uh, he tried to to do the same uh, to take yes an advantage before the last climb, but he didn't understood the strategy uh, of Uno X at the end because uh, yes, he has just 20 seconds uh, before the start of the, the bottom, so it's not uh, it's not enough to to cross the line uh, on the top uh, with uh, the best. So. There's nobody quite like him. Is, is that something you think is a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah he's, he's Mr. Perfect. Uh, he works a lot. He has not a, a big, big calendar because he prefers to, 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 prefer to prepare uh, his, uh, his goals uh, in the training camp. He works very, very hard and very, very well. 
like he said, sometimes it's better to have a, a Fiat Panda than a big BMW because when the, the little Panda is a, a good settings, <laughs> it works better than, than the BMW. But for him, he has not a, a big engine, but for me, he has a big engine. I don't know a lot of riders who can, who can do what he did. He has a very, very good uh, aerodynamic yeah. and it's not easy for the, the guys who are with, with him in the breakaway. He's obviously thinking a lot about yesterday and today. You know, he knew they would be good days for the breakaway. Uh, how much of that is him and his planning and, and his, uh, engineered by himself? And how much of that is the team planning and, and sort of informing and instructing Victor? Yesterday it was the plan uh, to try something because uh, if not, it's, uh, it's a convoy to, to the line for Philipsen. So we try some things and uh, we decided that if Alpesin plays with, uh, with them, we'll try to, to move uh, behind, to, to come back and to, to have more, more riders uh, in the breakaway. We, we did it with uh, Pascal. At first we didn't think it's enough. Uh, we prefer to have more, more riders with us, but it was enough. To be beaten by, by your guys like uh, Kaspar Green is uh, it's not a shame. He's it's, uh, it's a very good big rider, and uh, in my opinion, uh, each, each guy in the breakaway deserves uh, the victory. So it was a good day. The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. Now, few human beings on earth have what it takes to compete in the Tour de France. It's a few hundred people, really. The strain on the body and the mind is so great, and Science in Sport has all of the products to help keep them on the road. The specially developed SIS Go energy and caffeine gels are scientifically formulated to keep both the body and mind in peak condition, meaning all that you have to do is focus on holding your nerve until you cross the finish line. Science in Sports products are developed for elite athletes, but they're available to everybody. Go to scienceinsport.com to shop the whole range. L'étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. Last night we were in Bourg-en-Bresse. I was really taken with the town again. We were right in the centre of the pedestrianised bit. It was charming, wasn't it? Lovely. One of those places that you... Uh, well, we looked up the population, 40-odd thousand, and, and then we're trying to think of a British equivalent, and, you know, let's let's not sort of be unkind to any British towns, but... and for, Yeah, an equivalently... Oh, oh, there's, there's a couple of large dogs. There. Yeah, they, they managed to negotiate that. <laughs> wow. Wow, yeah, that was a... They're very large, aren't they? Yeah. Anyway, it's not a friendly bark, was it? No, it wasn't. Was, uh, it wasn't. Um, yeah, for for quite a small town, it, it kind of in the middle of nowhere in France. Bourg-en-Bresse had bags of charm, didn't it? And it, and it was buzzing on a Thursday night mm. with the tour. But it's one of those places where um, it feels like the tour is really present in the town. You, you wander down for dinner, and you see we see other journalists, or you mm. see the base chino ASO lot, or some of the people who are sort of working in the zone technique you know it feels like the sort of community there in the tour and uh, yeah lovely vibe well, well we, we went to Le Bresson a restaurant that uh, our colleague Andy McGrath from Velo the American magazine booked and we met uh, Andy McGrath and Scythe O'Shea and we had dinner with them we went for the Poulet de Bresse it was, it was nice I thought it's not the finest example I've ever had but it was nice it was, it was a, nice it was very nice yeah yeah I mean 
you'd been talking so much about meat and brown sauce, Lionel. I mean, that's essentially what it was. It was. But it was a good meat and brown sauce. It was. Though. And we had some Gratin Dauphinoise with it. Indeed. And we had a nice bottle of local white wine. And our other colleagues from the Escape Collective, who apparently do a podcast. I mean, I can't yeah. believe this. Can't uh, <laughs> they, they fell foul of some quite drunken... Danish well, they escaped fans. collectively to the kitchen. <laughs> he did. They had their dinner in the kitchen. Extraordinary. Yeah. Um, yeah. They. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the 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 Danish diners in that restaurant were tired was, and emotional. They were, weren't some, they? they were tired and emotional. They'd been celebrating for what might have been quite a long time. We actually saw them on our walk back to the yeah. uh, where we were staying. One of them was very One tired. One of them was very tired. <laughs> so much so he had to lie down on the floor at around yeah. about 11 o'clock at night and, and was helped up by his two friends. Um, but no, I enjoyed Bourg-en-Bresse. But here we are now. We've moved considerably further north, haven't we? We're in the Jura. We're heading to the Vosges and then we're going to take a big left turn to Paris uh, tomorrow night. Uh, but as we came into Arbois here... Well, Louis Pasteur is everywhere. The, he's on. He was in the press room on a big banner. He's on all the road signs. He's on this church here. I, I bet there's a boulevard Louis Pasteur. Several, no doubt. Um, yeah, son of son of this town. Wasn't born here, but grew up here. Went to school here before he moved to Paris. Um, Pasteur off of pasteurisation. Probably one of the people who has had saved the most number of lives I would imagine in human history because Pasteur was, a, was one of the pioneers of, of chemistry and um, understanding microbes basically germ theory um, so pasteurization treating wine and milk but also in terms of de- developing vaccines so a real proud son of uh, Arbois Comte cheese well, ironically uh, fact Here's a fact for you. Comte cannot be pasteurized. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it's got one of those uh, appellation d'origine controlée, you know, certain standards, if you're going to call it Comte. Uh, pasteurization may not occur. Well, we stopped for lunch and bought, uh, well, went to a bakery, didn't we? But opposite the baker's was a cheese shop, which actually had a cheese vending machine. Yes. I've never seen a cheese vending Have machine you not? before. No. They, they are caught. Co- they're, they're common in these cheese producing regions right. I think yeah never um, seen one yeah we'd right up my alley that I, w- I was very tempted if I see one tomorrow I'm going to stop because I was just worried that if I got some cheese and it sweated in the broom wagon for uh, 48 hours before I got it home it would be ruined but um, maybe yeah, it's going to be cooler up north so what was the biggest was there a big cheese you could get? Could you get a whole round or... No, it was all in big wedges. You could get a huge wedge of Comte for yeah. about €8.60, I think it was. Not yeah. that I was paying that much attention. or I was, really was tempted. Really contemplating it, weren't <laughs> you? <laughs> well, we'll hear some French flavour from our very good friend Francois Thomaso at the end of the episode. But before that, I just wanted to look ahead to tomorrow's stage because it is the last big one. And it goes to Le Markstein in the Vosges, which is where the penultimate stage of the Tour de France Femme went last year. They kind of reconfigured the climbs. That was the stage that Annemiek van Vluten won by almost three and a half minutes over Demi Vollering. It's a really aggressive attacking stage and did some of the same climbs, uh, the Petit Ballon and the Platz of Assel, which is the one that goes up to Lamarckstein. So it's going to be a hard day. Uh, there's a little bit of potential for shuffling around on the GC, perhaps. I'm not sure that um, Adam Yates is going to lose one minute and 17 seconds to Carlos Rodriguez and slip off the podium, but you never know. But then Rodriguez is only 18 seconds ahead of Simon Yates, and then 
Simon Yates is only 31 seconds ahead of Peo Bilbao, who in turn is only a minute ahead of Jai Hindley. So you never know, there might be a bit of a shuffling in that middle part of the top 10. But the big prize up for grabs tomorrow is the King of the Mountains at Jersey, the polka dot jersey, currently worn by Giulio Ciccone, who is six points clear of Felix Gall of AG2R, the winner of the stage a couple of days ago. Uh, lurking in there is Jonas Vingegaard, though, who is only seven points behind Ciccone. Now, if it ends up being a race for the stage at the finish, Vingegaard could possibly get enough points. So it's going to be Ciccone and Gall's job to get up the road early, perhaps, and, and get the points on the earlier climbs. Now, in total, there are 37 points on offer tomorrow. So all to play for could be a really interesting battle. And no doubt those those riders, Ciccone and Gall, will want to be in the break. I th- I have no idea how tomorrow is going to go. There's a lot of riders who, you know, have been informing this year's tour. Like Mike Woods is, I think, a prime example who will be eyeing up tomorrow's stage. But Thibaut Pino, it's the Pino stage. Naturally, yeah, we, yeah. We were just chatting about that with with Seb, weren't we, in the press room? You know, they're going to have to chain him down to to stop him from trying to <laughs> get in the breakaway. It's the home stage, and um, yeah, it, it's it doesn't feel like the sort of stage that is going to be under control by Jumbo Visma, but then again, like we were saying... They don't really need to. No, really. but, but maybe they just will mm. because they can. And and there is a, there is a prestige to it, like we said the other day, to it for a stage like that. But it, nobody would have seen what we saw today happen. So, um, yeah, although the GC battle is pretty much decided, I think, you know, the, the closeness of those lower GC positions and just the kind of the bonkers way that these last two days have been raced. I think yeah. they're in for a cracker. Well, you can absolutely guarantee that if, if a rider is sort of a minute or 30 seconds or a handful of seconds off improving their position on GC, they want to try and do that. It's not the sort of thing that we will remember as, as followers of the sport necessarily for, for in the years to come. We won't remember who finished sixth in you know, a certain Tour de France, but it does matter to the riders, not not least in terms of prize money and but future contracts. Exactly, and and when you have riders like Felix Gal, is he twenty five? I believe uh, Carlos Rodriguez, whose contract has been a hot topic in this year's Tour, twenty two. There's a lot to play for, and well, as I said, the stage is very similar to the penultimate stage of last year's Tour de France Fam, and of course, this year's race starts on Sunday back down in Clermont-Ferrand where I was a couple of weeks ago and the race works its way south in fact to Poe where it will finish and we will have Rose Manley and Denny Gray on the ground covering the race from Sunday through to Sunday and the first episode will go live well they'll be competing with us Richard we'll be doing the the finale of the men's race on the Champs-Élysées and they will be kicking off the women's race down in Clermont-Ferrand on Sunday so a double bill of cycling podcast episodes then but if you want to listen to the preview it's out now it's the final episode of our Kilometre Zero series from this year's tour it features Rose, Denny and Lizzie Banks previewing the Tour de France fam so listen to that before the race kicks off on Sunday and that wraps up Kilometre Zero for this year's tour which I've really enjoyed putting together quite an eclectic mix of episodes this year um, Francois Tour Tales tops a lot I think and on that note it's time for a little bit of French flavour Now for some French flavour would be François Thomas The flavour as you see will be cheese because it's a cheese area well I mean most of France is a cheese area but I mean yeah there's some very famous and good cheeses in uh, on on the stage today cycling wise Poligny doesn't have such a, a strong 
cycling record but because the women's tour is coming soon i'd like to point out that in 1995 Poligny hosted the Grand Book Feminine in a stage to Switzerland. The stage that started in, in uh, Poligny was won by Alessandra Capellotto, who became Italy's first women's world road champion two years later. So quite a little bit of the history there. Closer to the Tour de France, to the men's Tour de France, the start in Moiran en Montagne is marked by Alexis Villermont because he, 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 well, the French writer won a stage in Mur de Bretagne, where he actually lives close to the place and he, he has a sportif to his name in Moiran en Montagne. We went through a number of uh, little villages with a uh, cycling history, Champagnol being the, the, the biggest one, uh, several uh, finishes of the Tour de France. The last one in 2020 when Soren Krag Anderson won the stage there. Also, we went through the, the small village of Ne, and it's the, the home in France of Laszlo Bodrogi, took part to a, a few Tour de France, uh, time trial specialists, and uh, probably the, 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 the greatest Hungarian professional rider in recent decades. He lived there with his family. So that that's for the the, the, the cycling aspects of the, of the of the stage we had and of course the cheeses uh, i'm talking about a comté poligny praises itself as being the french capital of comté and comté was well, one of the france's most popular cheeses it was actually the first cheese in france to have an aoc to be you know protected by an appellation d'origine contrôlée back in 1958 but also at the start in moiran there's a famous cheese that's made in the area that's Bleu de Gex, as the name in, in, implies, kind of a blue cheese, you know, like a little bit like Roquefort or all these uh, blue cheeses we have. So as you see, a strong flavor of cheese in today's stage. At kilometre 42.5 today, the race went through Saronia, a small village of 222 souls. Go through those little places with a history that you know speaks to memories or to the mind and I wanted to pay homage to the, the most famous kid from the, the, the place, Saronia. There's an actor called Robert Linen. He was born there and he became a kind of a child star in 1932 when he played the title role in Julien Duvivier's movie Poil de Carotte alongside Harry Bohr. Harry Bohr was a great star at the time. Robert Linen made a dozen more successful films on, until the war. And in 1942, he joined the Resistance Network and was arrested by the Germans in 1943 near Marseille following a denunciation. He was detained uh, in a fortress near Karlsruhe in Germany and was shot dead on April the 1st, 1944, and was posthumously awarded the War Cross. You know, Paul de Carotte is a film that was very popular for kids, you know, back in the day, and Robert Linen is a you know, remains in French cinema as the face of uh, this young kid, Paul de Carotte, and then he became a Second World War hero. So 80 years after his death, I think he deserves a little homage there. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney. 